Brandon. Hey, Alan. And welcome to Dice Over Everything, the Miniatures Gaming Podcast, episode 101. We're past 100. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know. I don't feel like I've been sitting in this chair for that long, but... Oh, we oh, didn't do it in one day. It's been, I think it's been like three years. We started in 2018. Oh my God, that's longer. Uh, it doesn't feel like Groundhog. Doesn't feel like Groundhog Day to you every time you sit down. Okay. Uh, literally the two years, uh, in between that time and now for for COVID, I I just don't remember them. Hmm. So it's only been three years since 2018 in my head, even though it's actually been five years. It's crazy. Uh huh. Anyhow, on the note of things that have come back, I guess sports have come back. And I don't know, when you hear people like talking about sports and about like super nerdy stat stuff, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, I find it just reminds me of people talking about miniature gaming, like esoterica, like, oh, this guy's been getting this many scores in this, or he's super good at like this type of <laughs> this play. This many like, scores, I like that. <laughs> mm, this, this, level of, this level of nerdiness sounds, sounds very familiar to me. Yes, except that you don't understand it because it's something brand new to you. Yeah, and, and they're just going so deep into it that you're like, okay, this this is the, the level of jargon involved in talking about sports at the level that they're into it. You're just like, this makes absolutely no sense to me. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't know. Everybody can kind of like understand sports on the most superficial level. Like when you're watching it, you kind of like get a feeling for what's going well or what's not going well. Not so necessarily. No? Okay. Well, I guess if you look at the scorecard mm-hmm. where they're <laughs> – but you don't – Imagine looking at uh, American football and being like, uh-huh. oh, they, they they scored. Wait, how come they got three points? Oh, seven points? What? What's Like, how do you even know what's going on? Oh, wow, they looked so far ahead. It's it's three nothing. Oh, well, mm-hmm. what what happened? Now they're losing 6-3, right? Okay. Well, I guess you could give someone a two-minute explanation of, like, how the sports <laughs> played. And then when they're watching, they oh, kind of have... Pa- American football? No way. A lot of different games. Getting, getting closer to the other end. you know what the rules of end. cricket are? Heck no. I don't even know if getting to the <laughs> other end is sending the ball into the, the net. They don't even have a net. They don't have a net. Exactly. Like, exactly. what are you doing to get the ball to the other end? I don't know. Just get the ball to the other end. That's the sport. It's not really. Anyhow. I don't Anyhow. understand cricket really either. You're, you're apparently supposed to knock down wickets or something, and then you're, you need to hit the ball and, and run back and forth to get points hmm. before all your batters have gone through or all the wickets have been knocked down and then you switch and the other person does it but there's also a whole bunch of different ways to play it there's like short matches and long matches and i can't tell you okay. also this is like you know that's kind of like reading wikipedia to figure it out cricket uh, I have never actually watched a game of it played more than just like a couple of clips, so I actually don't know what I'm talking about. But go on. Okay, well that that reminds me of some like war games. We're like, okay, okay you, you could probably just like read the rules of this and maybe mm-hmm. be able to play the game. And other games, we're like, no, there's no way you can read the rules and yeah. show up and be like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. You just the rule books that go on for hundreds of pages have like books for every faction, all that. Like this, if you just read it and show up, you know you you've got no hope. But there's some yeah. games out there that are really fun that you can read the rules and start playing, and you can you can pretty much make your way through without feeling totally incompetent. Mhm. And I guess in that way is the game that we're going to be talking about today. 
Oh, Frostgrave, yes. If people have yes. not listened before to us, we have played Frostgrave for quite a few years. Yes, and Frostgrave now has a second edition. And I think I mentioned this before, Frostgrave is currently my favorite game to play. So uh, sometimes, though, if you're just getting into a game, even though Frostgrave, like you said, is a, is a pretty easy game, relatively speaking, to get into, it is still a miniatures game. So there's still a lot going on to get into the game. Um, so we, we thought it would be a good idea to start a Frostgrave series on everything about Frostgrave and all the knowledge we have and, uh, you know, going through the wizards and the world and all that kind of stuff. But the very, very first episode is how to get in at the very ground level. Like if you have not seen Frostgrave at all, Mm -hmm. this in this podcast, we're going to tell you everything you need to know to get those miniatures on the table. So you go and buy the two-player starter box, right? Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but there's no two-player starter box. So we'll yeah. tell you the next best mm-hmm. thing where you cobble together your two-player starter box. So at the very, very beginning, first, you know, we've mentioned it a, a, a bunch, but, like, assuming this reader or this listener doesn't know anything about Frostgrave, I think the first thing we should do is... Give them a brief explanation of what Frostgrave is and reasons you want to play it versus reasons you might not want to – this might not be the game for you. So at the very beginning, what is Frostgrave? So Frostgrave is primarily meant to be a campaign game set in a fantasy setting, and it leans towards like the magical end of fantasy and on the skirmish end, and you are out – in a like ruined fantasy city full of like magical items, magical beasts that's mostly uninhabited, but there's some like things left over, whether they're like mostly they're mostly not friendly to you. And you go <laughs> yes. to the city and you try and loot it to make your wizard richer and just more blinged out. Yep, so uh, you play as a bunch of wizards who are coming back to this uh fro frozen city that has thawed that's filled with like you said magical items and things like that so for you you will be playing a wizard and the bunch of uh, the wizard's apprentice and a bunch of mercenaries that the wizard has hired to loot this city and like you said most of the things are unfriendly and most of the things are not quite human uh that you you bump into so things like you know undead uh, wild animals, and uh, also sometimes demons and constructs, except for the other humans, which are your enemies, the other wizards, which is the friends that you will be bringing to fight over the treasure with. So yes, it is a competitive war game. And mm-hmm. on, on like the snow-covered thing, like you see all the books, it's all full of snow. We rarely play on, like, tables with snow. I mean, it's really cool when you do assemble that sort of terrain, but you you don't need to feel the need to have, like, everything you own be snow-based. Like, any fantasy sort of terrain works well for the setting. It's generally done. But let me – I forgot. We're we're now putting this on YouTube. So for Mm. those who can see things, this is basically sums up the game. Says fantasy wargaming in the frozen city, and if, for those who are, of you who are listening, it's two wizards having a wizards duel as they fight over, uh, you know, getting the treasure. Although technically speaking, your wizards will never get this close. 
<laughs> when they're fighting. Yeah, generally, I'm thinking how often be that's happened spells. in years. Yeah. Generally, they'll be casting spells on uh, from afar against the guys, uh, against their minions who they send out to get the treasure for them. Because you do not want to risk the life of your wizard. Because that's you. That's the personification of you. And yep. why would you risk your life when you can send one of your minions to, to risk their life instead? Yeah. So on the note of your minions, you basically have your wizard, your apprentice, and your eight minions until you start doing weird things with upgrades and summoning mm-hmm. people and all that. But it's basically you've got your two sort of spellcasters, and then you've got mm-hmm. your eight troops coming along with you. So it's pretty easy to build a warband from that standpoint. You're not worried, do I need lots of guys? Do I need a few guys? You're like, yeah. no, here's, here's basically the number. Yeah, so it's a great introductory game in many ways for people who are just getting into the hobby because of the small number of, of, of uh, units that you need for your army. Like mm-hmm. compared to the... You know, Warhammer 40,000 or even the middle-sized games like Bolt Action and stuff like that, that's a lot more uh, dedication you need to play it. And the other thing is because it's a fantasy game, a lot of people who play D&D already have 10 10 units of uh, like soldiers and things like that when they have those things. And so it's a good game if you're coming from the role-playing aspect where you play with miniatures to just jump in because you'll have a lot of the miniatures you need to play. Um, yeah, besides there, that, yeah, go on. Yeah, and there are no factions for like your war band itself. Mm-hmm. So, like, you can use whatever sort of figures you want. And it doesn't really influence the direction you're building the guys. So, if you want to play with a bunch of elves, if you want to play with a bunch of rat men, you know, like, yeah. you don't have to choose the faction per se and then fit guys, choose your like war band guys out of that faction. It's all generic across. Yeah, so uh, it's one of those things where. Uh, because it doesn't have its... Well, it does have its own miniature set, but because it's so open on saying what you want to bring, uh, it feel, it's a lot less restrictive for you to, to couple together, you know, 10 miniatures to go and play. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, in our current campaign, uh, one group is a bunch of rat men. Mine is a bunch of uh, miniatures from uh, Zombie Side Black Plague, Mm-hmm. Uh, yours are a bunch of war machine uh, witches. Yep. witches that have been converted and then uh, the last guy has a bunch of uh, Norse like old old like I think it, is it is it is it uh, what do you call it what's that game anyways they're a bunch of medieval guys so they're a little bit more uh, on pretty... point in terms of the setting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They feel kind of but more again, it's kind of like just sagam like miniatures, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's really easy to get in into play, and and as I've seen the people that play it, they really lean into that kind of aspect. So everyone is fine. If you bring a bunch of uh, orcs, for example, or frog wizards and play, uh, at least in in our group, we're totally okay. Uh, like it, a lot of the people actually I've seen online are totally okay with what you bring, right? Yeah, because the fluff is all yeah. about sort of the setting, not so much about who you are. So in the game, you yeah. you come up with who your group is and then bring right. it to well, the table. You definitely will be a wizard. And I think that mm-hmm. is possibly one of the biggest sticking points of the game, If uh, whether this game is or is not for you, is that because the game is based around wizard-on-wizard combat, uh, if you do not like wizards and you don't want to be a wizard... 
you might not enjoy it as much as uh, other kind of games, for example, Mordheim or something like that. Like, if you want it to be like a shining knight and mm-hmm. fighting other wizards, this is not the game, right? This is the game where you are like, oh, wizards are awesome. I like the fact that wizards are way more powerful than everyone else, right? Yep. Uh, especially if you come from D&D. Uh, you just got to lean into the fact that, that's, that you know, spellcasters are, in general, that's true. Uh, and yeah, you just got to enjoy that kind of thing. But if you are totally okay with wizards, this is like, like I said, this is my favorite game. It creates awesome battles with crazy things happening uh, from the get-go, even from level one. And uh, because the um wizards are the center uh uh the game mechanics uh, around that have uh are relatively simple and they don't feel like you're missing anything because the base game is simple and then the thing that makes everything go crazy is the wizard spells and they kind of are a layer on top so it's easy to get into because you all know your base stuff, right? And then mm-hmm. the wizard spells are the things that kind of throw things out of whack and allow you to do crazy things and break the rules of the game. So it just works really good, especially as like an intro game or it's your first game getting into it. Yep. Yeah, I'm just thinking like people may think they're like, oh, well, it's a wizard, but I could build the wizard into a knight. Technically, you can kind of make your wizard really good at fighting, but mm-hmm. in terms of like winning you don't want your wizard to be killed because it, it disables the power of your warband so hugely. And if they die, they might not continue in the campaign. So even yeah. if you think you can make your wizard really good at fighting, it's mm-hmm. probably a bad idea to try and actually <laughs> carry it out because maybe it yeah. works four games in a row, but on the fifth where your wizard just gets stabbed and now they have like That's some sort of permanent role. injury afterwards. Yeah. You're like, mm, or just dead and your warband gets disbanded. Yeah. The, yes, yes, you can build your wizard knight, but it's it's very risky proposition. Well, you can't necessarily do a knight because you can't have armor, but you can mm-hmm. do a wizard barbarian. You can definitely do a wizard barbarian. Yeah, well, you could. There's armor spells that give you better armor. You could increase your stats, give yourself yeah. a two-handed wh- weapon on your wizard, and go run into battle. But that's yeah. not necessarily advisable. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, like because of the variety and different cool things that the wizard spells do, it is really not as interesting for your wizard to run, to just buff themselves up, be super powerful, and punch people in the face with their whatever two-headed sword. It's just not as cool as all the different things you can do with the spells, because the spells are not just like, oh, this spell is just a magical gun, basically, right? The spells are do all sorts of different things with all sorts of different cool abilities, like turning invisible, pulling treasure, pushing a guy off a thing, transposing two people in different spots, summoning demons, all this kind of stuff. It's like there's so many different things that are so much more interesting and fun, even if technically power level-wise it might be good to super buff your, your wizard and just have them destroy things in melee. It's not nearly as fun. Yeah, like on future episodes, I think we'll get into sort of like the different directions you could build your wizard because there are different wizard schools available to your wizard. So yeah. I don't know, any tips for people who are starting? Because like when you read through the rulebook, one of the first things it tells you to do is choose a wizard school for your wizard. So any tips on that first step? Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, when you get mm-hmm. in, uh, if the things we've been talking about sound like something that would be interesting... Um, yeah, pick up this book and read the first 
the first section, even before you get like the, this book is laid out pretty well in terms of getting in because the first section uh, is not like how to play. The first section is how to build your warband. And that's the first thing you want, right? Because um, I think it's because the game is centered around wizards, uh, you want to build something that, you know, uh, a warband that, and, and also because the game is played in a campaign, so you will probably be playing your warband, war the same kind of warband for a bunch of levels. As they build up, they get stronger. You want to really like the warband that you start off with, right? So you probably want to choose you know, your first 10 starting guys, and, and your warband does change as they, mm -hmm. as you know, you get more money, you can buy better guys, but you want guys that you will like playing with for the long run, especially your wizard and your apprentice. And so the first thing in this book is you choose your wizard and uh, what kind of, uh, what kind of wizard your wizard is. And yeah. there are, there's some yep. fluff text in there about like, oh, this type of wizard dresses this way. They like these sort of symbols. You don't necessarily have to follow that. But if you feel yeah. like really getting into it, they give you a little bit of that like background. Yeah, and I think uh, because they give you that background, it helps evoke what kind of miniatures or what kind of character you want your wizard to be, right? Again, this is a campaign game, and, and it's based around, you know, your wizard, you are that wizard. So in a lot of ways, you know, it, it makes the game a lot better if you fully, you know, have that, like, who your wizard is in your head when you build it out. And it'll make the game a lot more fun and interesting as you see your wizard grow and empower, right? And so, so the different, yep. So honestly, I, for the last warbands and the ones I'm building now, I've taken the opposite route. I'm like, okay, I like this style of miniature or this, like, look of a wizard. What type, like, going through all those schools? And they're kind of very... They're kind of like, I don't want to say stereotypical, but archetypical. Quintessential, maybe. yeah, quintessential. archetypal. Yeah. yeah, they're quintessential and archetypical. archetypical. Yeah. So you kind of just buy, like I've always just bought Mitch, I think would make a cool wizard, and be like, okay, what archetype does it fit? And then you choose one of the 10 schools, is it? Yes, 10 schools of wizards. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, I'll just choose one of the schools that I think they fit into for the look of the mini. Yeah, and it basically does have... It covers basically all the different types of wizards you would think of uh, in terms of archetypes. And I'll just go through and, and name them now. And uh, each one is very evocative. And they also, I think in the old one, they had little pictures, little art of each one. In the new one, they, they also have uh, more like designs and art, but they don't necessarily have all the different little pictures of them. But the 10 different schools are Chronomancer, which is, you know, like Time Wizard, Elementalist, which is your your normal wizard who shoots fireballs and things like that, summons walls. Uh, enchanter, so someone who enchants weapons with magical abilities or creates constructs. Illusionist, which who creates illusions and does uh, weird like moving, like teleportation and stuff like that. And turning people honest, invisible. Yeah, turning people invisible. Uh, and I think a lot of people in general, Illusionist is in a lot of games is like a really weak school, but I really like the Illusionist school in this thing. This is one of the best Illusionist uh, wizards, like with wizard spells that I've uh, seen it, seen in any game. Uh, and then uh, Necromancer, which is almost self-explanatory, right? Undead, you know, controlling undead, summoning zombies and stuff. Sigilist 
who was like a works on uh, on creating scrolls and, and and word word magic and runes um soothsayer who's sees into the future kind of thing uh i think the main thing with soothsayer is actually controlling people's minds yeah because <laughs> it's one of the strongest spells in the game mind control mm-hmm. uh summoner who summons demons uh, and then Thaumaturge, who is your, like, cleric kind of thing, healer. And then Witch, who, you know, is more animalistic, uh, like, uh, controls animals and has that more kind of forest, foresty kind of wild person magic. Yep. Uh, yeah, so as you see, that's a lot of different types. Some of them, which I wouldn't even have... I don't even think of as a normal wizard school if, it, if I would think of wizard, but they have enough to like, you know, cover all their kind of bases in, in different types. Yeah, if you, if you have some sort of like archetype you're thinking of, you can probably fit it into one of those. So I think that's that's the suggestion. Is you as with any miniature game, you want to like enjoy the miniatures you're playing with. So mm-hmm. I don't su- I don't suggest like choosing your wizard school to be like powerful and having like the best spells. They're, the schools are balanced enough, and the game is meant to be like a fun sort of fluffy game. That like get the miniatures you want. That's that's what I would suggest. Yeah. And one of the main thing, one of what the important things to say, I'd say every single wizard school for your base one is relatively balanced, um, partially because um, you as a wizard you cannot only cast your one type of school, right? So you are a wizard, and you can actually cast any different types of any different type of uh, spell from any other different school. <clears throat> it's just you're better at casting the ones from your main school, and you start with more spells from your main school. So yeah. what happens is uh, you start with three spells from your main school, one from three different aligned schools, and then two from other ones. And you just basically, you know, you're you're best at casting your own spells. You're a little worse at casting your your uh, allied spells, and then you're you're not as good at casting the the other spells, right? Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you don't have to feel like oh I you know you, you don't have to get as torn up about uh, oh I want to be able to for example uh, summon a zombie, uh, but I still also want to uh, be able to I don't know also summon a demon let's say or teleport around yeah. yeah or teleport around right you can do both in the game. So uh, because of that, uh, it's quite open, and a lot of it really you should be choosing your wizards based on not on you know the theme that you want to create, mm-hmm. and not on power level or things like that. No, no, Frostgrave's not meant to be about like having crushing victories. Yeah. It's it's actually mostly the missions getting to that. Missions are largely based around gathering treasure, which then you crack open at the end. Yeah. So it's not about just like killing your opponent's guys like epically. Which if you kill all of them, you probably get all the treasure. You probably get all the treasure, yeah. <laughs> but if you find a way to like snatch all the treasure away through using your spells and get off, yeah. you've won because you got the treasure. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So um, yeah. So basically, after you have chosen your school and you and chosen your spells, right? You also build uh, your warband, and the thing is, again, your warband is like the, the type of units you can bring are the same uh, in for every single player, right? So you can't. It's not like Chronomancer has 
you know, certain kind of warbands. You're all wizards who who recruit basically human mercenaries to go and do it from the same list of, of mercenaries. And it's really about the type of spells that you can cast that really make your your characters unique, as well as the treasure you collect to outfit your guys. So with the soldiers, the biggest difference I see between them, because the soldiers, when you look at the book, will be divided mm-hmm. into your basic soldiers and your specialist soldiers. Mm-hmm. But the big difference in the type of soldiers is soldiers that are melee only and soldiers that have the ability to shoot as well. I would say those are mm-hmm. like those are the two big categories they fall into. And yeah. you have a limit of, well, the shooting soldiers are all specialist soldiers. Mm-hmm. And you have a limit of four specialist soldiers in your warband. So the thing is, if you want guys who are really good at fighting, they're often going to be specialists as well. So you have to kind of decide, okay, do I want like three shooting guys, two shooting guys? Do I want to shoot a lot of all four being shooting? That's Mm -hmm. kind of the main decision you make at the beginning. Because if you start buying, you spend your initial points on some like specialist soldiers that mm-hmm. are really good at melee, but you figure the final destination for your warband is to have all guys with like crossbows, then mm-hmm. maybe that's not your best pick to like take a melee guy as a specialist soldier. Yeah, and because you max out at four specialist soldiers, sometimes you you if you might not want to, and you only have a certain amount when you start off, or you only have 300 gold to hire your guys, uh, you might, if you have an idea of, you know, wanting all rangers at the end you don't have enough money to buy all your rangers right so you might just buy two rangers and then instead of you know buying you know you don't have enough necessarily to buy that third instead of buying that archer you might buy a a, a normal more expensive normal soldier mm-hmm. uh just to fill things out so that your your characters can always be used later in the game right Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the, the hard things that people have when they see the game, right, and when the next thing they're looking at is buying their soldiers, right? People don't necessarily understand because they haven't played the game, right? They don't necessarily – and technically when you're reading this book, you will not have gotten to the rules of the game yet, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you uh, – a lot of people have questions on what is a good starting uh, warband. So in general, do you have any – general kind of views on what a good starting warband is when you when you you build it honestly i feel obliged to put in like two shooting guys at the very beginning okay it, it just gives you the ability <clears throat> that something's running at you or trying to run away with treasure that you can just reach out and touch it versus like if you need to with an arrow with an arrow yes versus if you have to slowly chase the guy down across the board you can be intercepted it might take too long to get to them I just feel like I need, at the start, to have two guys who can shoot. Okay. So So for me, actually, my main one is that at the start, I have a a, a different kind of view, and that is to start with more guys that are I expect to be useful in the end because I don't yep. expect them to die, right? Mm-hmm. So I, in general, because of the amount of costs, don't necessarily take – two uh shooting guys at the beginning i start with one and then the first thing i want to do is buy that second uh shooting guy which is generally a ranger so i will yep yeah you can take that approach you start with one with the second one in mind yeah so you i don't think you should necessarily go towards having three and four shooting guys in the end like unless that's really what you have in your mind Mm -hmm. because it's honestly it doesn't 
fighting in close combat in the game is a really entertaining part of it. Just standing there and just being like pew, pew, pew. It's not like the game play style that Frostgrave really excels at. But And the other thing is that it might seem very, very powerful because when you start playing it, right? Because melee, whenever you fight a melee, uh, you're, you're equally at risk of winning and losing. So it seems like melee is a lot worse than shooting. Mm-hmm. But the game and, and the spells that have been put in there have really, uh, in second edition, uh, have really switched things up. And because you can only have, or have four ranged guys... Uh, it changes the game a lot so that range, like you can never have an oversaturation of ranged units, right? So what it means is that uh, if you're just plinking them with uh, arrows, although that's very strong, uh, even if you kill way more of their units, you won't be moving up. And so there's very likely a good chance that you will still lose because you won't get all the treasure, right? And yeah, again, this game is about getting treasure, not about killing your entire enemy's warband. Yeah, you've got to get up close and personal to get to haul the treasure off. So Yeah, so you, that kind of balancing. So in, in that, with that in mind, uh, I think uh, let's go through a couple of good starting uh, warbands. Um, I think the main thing is, so you can fill out your warband with thugs and thieves, right, If for, that don't cost money. So the main thing mm-hmm. is you have 300 gold after you've purchased your uh, apprentice to buy uh, soldiers for your starting uh, starting warband. Uh, and it's really about spending that 300 gold and then filling out everything else with thugs and thieves, right, who are free. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, when you have the leftovers, you just want to build it like probably half-half thugs and thieves. That's in general what I do. But for that 300 gold... Um, what would you choose as what you would spend uh, for an example warband? Uh, I pulled one up, but it, it was using Javelin Years, which sure. I don't suggest you actually start with using those things because they come in an expansion book. And like it's best when you're just getting started to buy the base book because the, the rule book, because yeah. it's the second edition, there's some things from the previous editions that roll over. Mm-hmm. But I would suggest... As Alan said, if you're trying to like build towards a final rule warband, maybe not buying some of the cheaper specialist soldiers because there's slightly better versions to be had of them that maybe you would have preferred to like have the better version later on. And instead of spending like a hundred on getting like the starting version of like someone who's like got a pretty good at fighting but only has less armor, maybe you mm-hmm. want the better version later on. It's worth 125. Yep. That. I suggest just buying the better versions to start with. So if you think you want to just hang out and shoot, <clears throat> then maybe you want to go for like a marksman because marksmen have a bit more armor and they have a crossbow that does a bit more damage than bows. If you're just mm-hmm. you're thinking of sitting at the back and shooting and having sort of like a turret built around your wizard, the marksman is a good way to go. Or if you think you sure. want to just be running and gunning, maybe buy one of the more expensive ones of a ranger because they have some of the highest... They have the highest movement amongst your soldiers, and they can also shoot the bow. So mm-hmm. I suggest like picking one of the two of those to start with. So mm-hmm. they're both 125. Mm-hmm. And then possibly going for like one of the 75-point starting soldiers, which would be a – are those the man-at-arms? It's the man-at-arms and the uh, healing guy. Yeah, or the apothecary. Uh, what do you call it? 
The apothecary, yes. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of the man at arms. Yeah, he's he's a great actual final guy as well because mm-hmm. he's a normal soldier, so he fits in on one of those four. But he also he's basically the best at fighting that you can get for a normal soldier. Yeah. And and keep it you know keeping the line. Yeah, because you're gonna have four of those in all likelihood even at the end of the game. So it's you don't feel like you've wasted your money if you have that guy left yeah. at the end you're gonna hope yep. he doesn't die exactly yep so you would say would you think like one ranger or marksman and then two men at arms is a good start i mean that would leave you with 25 gold lying around yeah i don't i generally don't like leaving gold lying around i don't know <laughs> but you could save that to eventually get you know uh as you get more gold when you play games, mm-hmm. you can very, pretty quickly buy, like, let's say, another ranger or an archer or a marksman or something like that. So I think that's a pretty good start. Yep. And the two and the two uh, mattered arms are quite tough for your starting warband, so they're, they're really good. I, I would say that's a good start. Mm-hmm. I find often, though, I will just... Then with that last 100... Mm-hmm. Buy a crossbowman or an archer, uh-huh. which yes, you're you're leaving the you're leaving the better options off that you could have paid more for later. Mm-hmm. But I find just having them at the very beginning lets you like get that edge in playing the game early on, which may get you more treasure. So just having mm-hmm. two shooting people, like one in the game shooting someone with an, an arrow once and hitting them, probably not going to kill them. Whereas if you've got, mm-hmm. say, an archer and your ranger that both hit, manage to hit, like you may not hit, sure. But if you land two shots of those, there's a chance you might actually kill the thing you're shooting at. Yep. So I find I having two of them gives you kind of an edge. If somebody's trying to run away with the treasure, you shoot them in the back twice. Sure. And then you come and you grab it. So having, even though you may not be able to get the two best shooting ones at the very top of the game, you know, it's okay to take a lesser version of the shooting one, I find. So, so here's one where it's, a, a, a stronger start with that in mind, mm-hmm. but not necessarily, you know, you, you will have somewhat <laughs> want to replace some of the guys later on. Yeah. So with that, I think the strongest start actually would be Archer, Archer, Man-at-Arms, Man-at-Arms. So that is 300 mm-hmm. right there. Yep. But I th- actually think that's probably the strongest start you can get. Now, both archers are specialist soldiers, but you generally will want to end up replacing them with better soldiers when you have the money, right? That said, there's all sorts of different ways to spend money. Like, you will you will never have a point where you have too much money in the game, basically, because there's always something to spend money on in the game. Yeah, unless you play for uh, years and years of the yeah, same sure. warband, which I don't, if, if I, don't warband, suggest, I don't suggest yeah. doing that, but if you did that, you would have... Yeah, okay, sure. But for the first 10, 15 games, you probably still have lots of different things you can spend your money on. Um, But, uh, yeah, so I think a good start in terms of just general power level, like I said, Archer, Archer, Man at Arms, Man at Arms. Mm -hmm. My general go-to is Ranger, Barbarian, Infantryman. Uh, Now, the Infantryman is generally the one that is going to want to be replaced, but... Because he's a normal soldier, uh, he generally just ends up dying at some point. Because, yeah. you know, you send him out, he fights, 
he will generally lose uh, eventually, especially to stronger guys. So you end up just replacing him in general. But the Ranger and a Barbarian, if they don't die, they are like solid things you want at the end. Uh, Barbarian's not quite as good as Templar, but at the same time, uh, I like my Barbarian miniatures. So in general, I choose Barbarian over uh, Templar. Yeah, Barbarian's taken... a bit weak, in, in my opinion, but overall, he's still usable. Yeah, like I've taken a Barbarian too, just because I'm like, well, here's the miniature I want to use. Oh. Okay, fine, I take a slight hit on the stats, yeah. but whatever. I think basically everyone in our uh, – not everyone, most of the people in our uh, our last couple of, uh, of, of campaigns took Barbarians over Templars or Knights, but it was basically just miniatures because mm-hmm. we all agree Barbarians are weaker than Knights and Templars. Yeah. <laughs> we still take them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, just just so you know what you're getting into. Don't yeah. the game's not meant to be. Yep. Yeah. Not best played hyper competitively. The final one that I think is pretty strong is uh, Treasure Hunter, Archer, and Ranger. So again, in the thing you're talking about, Archer and Ranger are both very good. Uh, like are good at shooting. Ranger is a top level shooting unit, uh, and then Treasure Hunter is also a medium level kind of guy, but. He's also a top-level unit specialist because he moves uh, seven. So speed is very, very important in the game uh, because the point of the game is to run towards treasure, grab them, and get off the board. And so the treasure hunter is very, very good at doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll also be able to fight people off because he has three fight, right? So he has a little bit better fight. He moves fast. And also because he doesn't carry something cumbersome like a two-handed weapon or a... Uh, bow or something like that he doesn't get a negative uh to to fight uh when he picks up a treasure mm-hmm. so it's a great unit all right and right. i think yeah i think those are pretty good uh examples of uh starting excuse me soldiers uh you might want to get mm-hmm. now uh now that you've you know chosen you know your wizard uh and your, your wizard school and your uh, warband. Did are we missing something? Yeah. I guess we didn't go through. I guess it's two things. One is choosing your wizard spells, but right. I think that's too much to go through right now. Yeah, I think for each wizard and for each like, there's different types of builds you might do. I think we'll go deeper into those on future episodes. Whether we yeah, go through them so. school by school or maybe we <clears throat> go through a build by build think yeah. about that because this yeah. like you could build towards a shooting faction you could build towards a buffing thing you could build towards a summoning thing and it's yeah. not necessarily one school for all those so we may approach it by that yeah. or we might approach it by school we'll see and i would say just as a general overview is when you choose all your spells you probably want at least one that is good at movement that allows you to move faster than just the normal move move now, it's not that you can't do it without those things, but especially when you're starting out, you will definitely want something like that. So something like Leap, Telekinesis, which is kind of like moving fast because you move the treasure closer to you, uh, <clears throat> Transpose or something like that is really useful to have. Uh, besides that, you know, you can take whatever you want. Yeah, I, I would suggest considering a shooting attack that's magic type as well. Oh, yes. Just because there's right. certain enemies that are just immune to every other type of attack. And if they yeah. come at you, you will until you've bought like special magical weapons, 
you'll have no ability to kill them, and they'll keep harassing and killing your guys <laughs> yes. unless you have one of those spells. You don't have to, Fair but enough. it's strongly yeah. suggested that things could go really awry if you don't have one of those. That's so. a good point. So one mag- one way to get magical attacks, whether that is a magical attack, like a grenade or something like that, or enchant weapon, which turns your weapon into uh, magic, yep. uh, and then one that helps you go faster. So mm-hmm. with that in mind, besides that, you can generally go ham with the rest of the stuff. It's not set in stone, because my current worm band, I didn't do any of that. Like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's doing pretty well, i got to say. Yeah, uh, that said, we have had a lot of experience, and when you start the game, it'll be a lot harder to play if you don't understand your limitations. So having those two is a good start. Yeah. All right, the next thing. Now that you have your warband, you have an idea of what spells, you chose that stuff, you got your, your warband, you assembled them, you painted them up beautifully. Uh, what's next? I didn't paint them up beautifully. That's one of my fastest painted <laughs> miniatures I have. I don't They're know why. They're still that's... beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. But you don't... Painted miniatures are always beautiful. Exactly. Just yeah. get them painted. It's cool. So after that, what's next? So I guess once you get into the game, the missions will be throwing dudes at you. <clears throat> yes. So, so now you have to think about what you actually need now that you have your warbands. And obviously, you mm-hmm. probably need a friend who has also done the same thing. And gotten this book, or uh, or yeah. just download it from Drive Through RPG or Osprey oh, War Games like I did, because yeah, you just or Google throw, Google Books. Yeah, you throw it on your phone, just pull it up. It's, it's yeah. mostly about reading the missions once you've played it for a while, but has <clears throat> there's lots of cool missions. You want to be able to have the book on hand to play the missions. Yeah. Um. So after you have that, you will need uh, a battlefield, and mm-hmm. also you will need. Uh, especially for certain missions, but basically all the time, you will need wandering monsters. So because yep. So do you want to start talking about the battlefield, or do you want to start talking about the wandering monsters first? Let's do the battlefield first, because technically, okay. when you play a game, you will set up the battlefield first, and then you will put the wandering monsters when you start playing. So yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind about building the battlefield for me is almost like mantic stuff, like mantic terrain kits with a bunch of walls yeah. in them, because walls. The missions will often talk about like having rooms and stuff in them. Not mm-hmm. necessarily, but it just helps. Because you're supposed to be in a bunch of the buildings of the Frozen City. Mm-hmm. So rather than having like buildings themselves to walk around, because you're supposed to be inside a bunch of buildings, they're supposed to be really huge and like grand buildings. Mm-hmm. We've found that to build tables with lots of variety... Having wall sections just kind of turn into mazes, turn into buildings, turn into all that, mm. it ends up being really versatile. Like, I know you've just made some out of styrofoam rather than yeah. going and buying them. I also made some out of, like, textured plastic card. Mm-hmm. But that takes time, so maybe just getting a bunch of, like, boxes of mantic walls, like, not the short ones, but taller ones and ruins, because mm-hmm. the city is meant to be ruined, Yes, could be a quick way of just getting your stuff right on the board. Yeah, so I guess taking uh, one more, like, uh, high-level view is that mm-hmm. Frostgrave uh, is a th- you generally play it on a three-foot by three-foot table, so it's 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 relatively small. But uh, the issue with it is that it's supposed to be a very terrain-dense game. Yep. So there is a line. Uh, it's kind of it's somewhat annoying in the book. There's no diagrams, yep. uh, but there is a description that says 
you at ground level, so you're playing in a city, right? So at, at when you think about a city, there's lots of buildings, right? But it, it also says when you're playing, despite playing on a three by three board, it says there should never be at ground level any line of sight that is longer than 24 inches, right? And that kind of gives you an idea that there should be a lot of terrain on, right? It's not just like everything's 24 inches. There should be most of the ways you shouldn't necessarily be able to see these 24-inch fire lanes. And technically, even despite that, if you have something over 24 inches, you still can't shoot over it, even if you're like above the building, uh, presumably because it's snowy and the visibility is not very good. But uh, yeah, so because of that, you need a lot of terrain, and that's why I think um, – you were talking about getting, you know, quick mantic terrain, uh, just to get it on the table to fill that out. But if you don't have that, uh, creating um, simple uh, styrofoam, like uh, what is it, the foam board uh, ruins. There's a very common technique where you take foam board. If you're if you're really joshing to go play, you painted up these beautiful things. You can create. Uh, foam, uh, foam board is like the things you buy from the dollar store where they have the foam inside. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like a half a centimeter. There's foam inside and then uh, a thick cardstock on the two different sides. Uh, and they're pretty cheap. It's like a dollar, two dollars, I think, for a big big sheet. And you mm -hmm. basically cut it into a corner, diagonal, a corner ruin. And there's lots of designs that you can find online for creating mm -hmm. these things. And uh, they won't necessarily be super beautiful or uh, survivable as if you go out and buy the pink foam that I built my walls out of, uh, but they're really quick and you can glue them together just using, uh, you know, craft glue, the white glue, right, and get a whole city of, of terrain uh, which done in like, I don't know, uh, a few hours maybe, maybe like four four hours or so, right? to fill out your terrain uh and it's relatively cheap as well to do that if you can't go and afford you know the mantic stuff like you said mantic you just you just have to throw money at it mm -hmm. and uh you can fill up your thing but uh if you are wanting to do it on a budget you, yep. you just need a you know another four hours or something like that get something quick if you get the black one you could just maybe splash yeah. a little bit of or even just some dry brush over it and yeah. yeah, if there is foam in the center, you got to be careful about uh, uh, spray paint. But a quick, like, large brush to, to just put some grays and browns on it can really get your city city up and going. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a decent material. It's widely available. Yeah, you can bend yeah. it into shapes, cut windows out of the top of it to make it into ruins that fit the, yeah. it fit the theme of the game. Yeah. And, then and you like can I said, they're basically walls. Top layers, yeah. Them. And you can put little platforms gluing them on so your miniatures can go up and, and climb up and shoot people from, from above. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, probably the easiest way to go about uh, getting, you know, your terrain done. And like I said, you need a lot of terrain. So uh, if you start off with that, uh, even if you buy nice terrain and you want to paint it up nice, it's nice to have this more disposable terrain, at least at the start, and slowly replace it as you play with nicer terrain as you make it and paint it up. Yeah, I don't feel like you need fully modeled buildings for this game. They just, how the gameplay works, it doesn't seem to lend itself to that. Like Having a few like outbuildings between mm -hmm. the bigger wall sections is kind of cool, but I don't yeah. think anyone should feel obliged to own like tons of... like. MDF terrain with big mm. buildings or anything else like that. Just yeah, it's not 
not necessary. You say we we shouldn't feel obliged, but like we all do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a city with buildings with full interiors, yeah. roofs, opening doors. Let's. I mean, yeah. it's worth going to that level if you really oh, like the so game. So fun. Yeah, but and it's good if you to. want to play all sorts of different games. I also have uh, a cities built and things like that specifically for Frostgrave, but also to play any kind of medieval fantasy kind of uh, city game. All right, so I think that covers the board. If you want to get a winter mat, get a winter mat. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Otherwise, just like any 3x3 or 4x4 mat and you just shrink it down is perfectly yep. good. So having a mat's nice to play on, though. All right. <clears throat> uh, and that goes to the next thing we mentioned, which is once you start uh, you know, having your guys on the table yep. uh, and you've laid out your terrain and you have a beautiful city fully painted and modeled mm-hmm. uh i guess you also need treasure tokens oh yes yeah treasure is important you want to have cool looking things to fight over definitely just yeah so you need five treasure tokens they just need to be you know the same base as like you know 20 millimeter or 25 millimeter uh just they're tokens to, to to fight over if you don't have those you can just use whatever kind of tokens you want yeah you can use other other paper based ones or just yeah. model them out of whatever yeah. Sure. It's just more fun when you have treasure chests, and those ones are relatively easy. I think the easiest way, way to get them is like Mantic or uh, D&D ones, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. treasure chests are relatively easy to find uh, because of D&D, so. Yeah, yeah, Mantic's a good source. If you want, want to throw money at it, you can throw money at Mantic, and you'll get lots of lots of these things, which I think sort of fits into the next part where... So in the game, you do encounter like monsters that will either be on the board at the start, or mm-hmm. when you pick up treasure, you then roll and monsters randomly appear. Yeah, it and, is you know. so fun. I don't understand mm-hmm. why this doesn't happen in all, in all other games now. I'm like, man, this is amazing. Like when we started playing it, you think it's just about wizard on wizard action, but when random monsters show up on random places, it changes like the dynamic and it makes the the city feel also more alive as well which is kind of surprising and we our our group started liking monsters so much we started trying to make more monsters show up mm-hmm. uh and and joe mccullough also who's the author of the game also thought that too because it, it used to be i think monsters only showed up on a 12 or something like that or a 14 Four, or something 14, i think yeah it was really high and then he changed it for second edition, obviously noticing that everyone just like more monsters. So now it's at a 10 plus on a D20, which mm-hmm. means more likely than not, a monster will show up when you pick up a treasure. And there yeah. are five treasures in a normal game, so you're probably going to at least see two monsters every game. Yeah, because when you see like your how the game deploys, it's like, okay, here, here's one wizard versus another wizard. But as you play through the game, you might just end up bogged down by the monsters so badly that you're not fighting each other all that much. You're just hoping to survive if some crazy monsters yes. start appearing on you or if the mission just br- keeps bringing in wave after wave of them. So yeah. don't feel like it's just you versus the other player all the time. Yeah, A lot it's of it's you versus the game. So. Yeah. All right. So when you choose these monsters, so, uh, well, what kind of monsters will generally show up and what do you need to make sure that when you're playing it, uh, you will be able to put these things on the table. So a lot of types of monsters, like if you think of a ghoul and a zombie, you're like, ah, I could probably make those interchangeable. 
they have wolves and wild dogs. They're like, okay, to start with, I don't necessarily need models for both of these. And then sometimes bigger monsters show up, like, say, a... Greater uh, demon? A greater demon, a yeah. Yeah, there's, there's bears as animals. Mm-hmm. But I'm um, just thinking of, like, the giants. There's giants, and there's also, yeah. like... I don't have a problem reading this, but... Anyhow. Yeah. Those are... Yeah, those frost so there's... I think you've noticed from the way we're talking about it, there's a lot of different monsters that actually show up. Now, when mm-hmm. you're just getting into it, if you do not have like a – like if you're a D&D player and you play with miniatures, you probably have all these min- monsters and you'll probably be super happy to like put them on the table for your gameplay. Like search them out when you roll like a, a one in – you know, uh, generally when you when you summon monsters, like mm-hmm. it's you roll 2d20. And then, so you have like one in 400 chance, right? For certain mm-hmm. things. Uh, so you have like a one in 200 chance guy and something, and it shows up like like, like a, uh, a like, like I guess you said, like a frost giant. When mm-hmm. that shows up, you'll be super excited to run over and get your miniatures. But I don't think you necessarily <clears throat> need all of those things because the, the chart is, there's like a lot of different monsters. And you kind of, like you said, want to have the minimum number of monsters so you can get right into the game, right? Yep. So, so there are 23, like, monsters that may appear as a result of, like, picking up treasure, but many of them are, like, similar enough that you don't feel like you have to own the entire, what they call the bestiary in Frostgrave. Mm-hmm. So as so what do you think are critical? The rats are critical because I actually put together a spreadsheet based on probabilities and all that, like how many will appear per 100 encounters. Yeah. And apparently every like 100 encounters, you'll end up with like 20 rats. So that's every 100 yeah. encounters. So you don't feel like you have to own 20 rats, but only a couple yeah. rats. The giant rats, though. Giant rats, yes. Not yes. even the teeny rats. So, so I would say <clears throat> there's a couple of things. So there are uh, – the way I kind of classify them is mm-hmm. you have the undead creatures, right? Then you have the animals, yeah, the smaller animals. Then you have smaller like creatures, like demons, and then you have big monsters, right? So I would say that's kind of what you want. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then there's a couple of ones that I generally like to have. Uh, So, so to me, you need, you definitely need, uh, like you said, like rats. Now rats, if you get rat models, giant rats, you could also use, instead of rats, in a pinch, you could use wolves, right? As long as they're okay. normal size wolves, not giant wolves, right? And basically whenever any dogs, wolves, rats, boars, those kind of animals show up, you can just use wild animal as the thing. So you want a few of those models, probably like three, three maybe, maximum like four of those type of models to yep. kind of fill those out. Uh, and then I would then I say you also want some undead because often when undead show up they a bunch of them show up. Yes, yeah, so like, want, zo- like like zombies will show up, ghouls, armored skeletons. They're all things yep. that show up with they're above average for how often yep. they show up. And because they show up, you probably also want three or four of those as well. Uh, and then they can also you also kind of want uh, rates. Now the reason why is that although rates are 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 decently common, they're not that common. There's actually a mission in the main rulebook where you have a whole bunch of rates show up. Yeah. So depending on your undead, 
uh, models, you might want to be able to do double duty with wraiths, or you might want to have your own own like I, generally having at least one wraith is good, right? And then filling up for the for the wraith mission, just filling it out with extra, you know, zombies and skeletons to say they're wraiths. Mm-hmm. And then you probably want something big and a little bit like like a demon, like a big demon. Or like to fill ogre. in for or ogre or something like that right. to fill in for when a troll, ogre, werewolf, a gorilla, white gorilla, or a demon shows up, something mm-hmm. like that, and they can basically pull on double duty because all those things are rare. You only need maybe one of those kind of miniatures, and you'll generally be fine. Yeah, yeah. Whatever they show up about the same regularity, so whatever you feel like you think is cool, yeah. or you already already have it, have that yeah. around. And then I guess the last thing is imps are relatively common. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because it's that common on the chart. It's decently common. But because one of, like you can summon imps. Yep. You so, might want to summon. Or you might, get this, you might gain the spell throughout the game to have the imps. So, yeah. No. And in a lot of other like expansions and stuff, there's little creatures. So it's good to have a couple of small monsters on the table. And they can also sub in for rats if you run out of you know, your animals, mm-hmm. right? So I would say overall, you probably actually need at least like 10 monsters, probably like maybe four, three, maybe four animals, right? Like rat, dog-sized animals, uh, three or f- maybe four kind of zombie skeleton kind of guys, a couple of imps, a large demon-like or, or troll-like monster, a wraith, and a bear, which is... Bear is because they're also awesome. <laughs> and a bear is kind of quintessential. Like, I guess you could substitute a demon for a bear, but it doesn't, like, the, your troll for a bear, but it doesn't seem right, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, actually, when I counted those all up, that's actually 12 monsters. But <laughs> but that, to me, is, like, a good bestiary to have to cover all your bases. Now, of course, if you only have, like, six models, you just have to, like, you could just have six zombies and just know which one shows up and just play them differently but it's just cooler if you have different things so you probably don't at the bare minimum need six or seven models yeah so just to accomplish that like on a budget with cool models mm-hmm. and you, for things you don't already have i really suggest just going looking at the whiz kids range mm-hmm. that they have like all the quintessential D models in it it's yeah. easy to pick out these things from them they usually come in packs of two so you're mm-hmm. getting a couple of them at once and they're super yeah. cheap and the sculpts are pretty nice, too. Like, they're not the most yeah. high-detail sculpts, but because you want to paint these things up pretty quickly, because they're just, like, yeah. the monsters, I think that's, yeah. like, one of the best sources out there for those sort of minis. Yeah, I think for for minimum, I would say three undead, three mm-hmm. animals, and one larger monster. And you will have to be mm-hmm. substituting for the, the models, because obviously, you know, there's so many different animals, they won't be the right one, but that should generally give you a decent... Uh, chance of covering your bases and having something that looks kind of like what's what's showing up. Yeah, like you and I don't even own the full bestiary. One of our other friends has gone through the effort of just like... Uh, I own the full bestiary. Oh, you have all the rats. Really? Yeah, I do have rats. Yeah, oh. and They're just scattered in a whole bunch of different boxes because I uh-huh. play all these different games, but I do mm-hmm. have the full bestiary. So if you want hunting through all your boxes, you could like, oh, no, wait, wait, wait. I'll, yeah, 20 yeah. minutes later, you'll come up with, with the armor <laughs> exactly. skeleton of your dreams. Exactly. So I do actually have the full beast theory. Nice. Uh, yeah. 
All right. So with that, I guess that means a minimum. You probably need seven extra models after your warband to get playing. But again, you can often uh, split that up between the different people playing. <clears throat> so you might want to concentrate on the undead, or let's say you have undead from another force. Uh, let's say you play a different game that has undead a lot. You might have the undead, and your friend might have the animals and like things like that. And if you both bring, you know, four or five models, you got a lot of models there to fill out your bestiary. Yep. All right, so we talked about terrain, we talked about models. I think that gets all the, the stuff you need. It yes. just uses, we didn't talk about dice at the beginning, but that's pretty obvious. It uses a d20, basically. 20, yes. Yeah. 20-sided dice, the same thing you do when you play D&D. So obviously, if you're playing D&D, this is a great first uh, war game and last war game because this is my favorite. So <laughs> if you want to go and try out war games and you're, you're a D&D player, Definitely, this is it should be really easy for you to get into this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, yeah, we went through how you, you know getting into your first games. I think the only thing we haven't talked about uh, in terms of you know a lot of what beginners might have questions for is that there's a lot of Frostgrave books besides the first book, mm-hmm. uh, and people often ask which books should they pick up next. So there's some books are first edition and some are second edition. And honestly, if you're a new player, you might as well just stick to the second edition ones so you don't have to like figure out uh, what belongs. Disagree. You disagree. Yes. Really, you want to go back in time? You shouldn't just. Yes. Well, honestly, if you're a brand new player. You're so obsessed with new and hotness. I think a yeah. lot of the initial ones are really good books and they basically they work fine in general. There's okay. actually in the back of second edition book. There is a list of things that you can do to update the things in the first edition to uh, get them to work with second edition. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing suggesting to new players would be don't like embark on a permanent campaign right away. Maybe mm-hmm. with your friends play two of the missions out of the first book just to get a feel for how the whole game yeah. goes. Three? You're saying maybe two, three? I'd say three. I'd say they can play, play three games. Quickly, so yeah. yeah. They play pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You might even play like the first, you know, one kind of game to get to understand it. And by by the third game, you've you've probably got a, a fairly good grasp and understanding of what type of game you want to play and and if the game is for you or not, right? So so embark on a three game long campaign, just yes. so you so you don't feel like you're screwing yourself permanently if you do something stupidly with choosing spells. You spend your money poorly, whatever. Just go on three mm-hmm. missions. And like, just to get a feel for it, out of the out of the starting book. Yeah, and the the starting book is really good. Like, it has twenty different missions. So if you just play the like, the missions out of the starting book, that's a lot of content. And the one of the great things about Frostgrave, I think we mentioned before, mm-hmm. is the missions are great and quite varied. Like the first mission is really uh, simple, uh, but they quickly get more and more complicated right with more and more things and you sometimes you even need to have special terrain and special units like we mentioned uh the further you get into the book so there's a lot of content if you just stick with the main book so in the the expansion books are largely sort of the campaigns take you through a story of you traveling through Mm -hmm. a certain place or chasing after like a lich lord like a special Mm -hmm. character like that the starting book, is it really, is it bringing you through a whole story like the expansion book so much, or is it more just a variety of missions? Uh, it's just, uh, it's a variety of missions, so mm-hmm. you can basically choose them. I think there's like a, 
you could roll up emissions down to just 20, right? Yep. And play them out. Um, and that's partially why I would say you want to buy expansion books because mm-hmm. so each expansion book comes with a bunch of, of different things. They will sometimes have you know different rules that help to to, to flesh out certain things. Um, they will have new soldiers you can take, and then they will also have uh, new missions or scenarios or even like campaigns mm-hmm. with new treasure. And to me, the most important of those three is the missions, uh, the scenario, the campaigns with new missions and new treasure that mm-hmm. really kind of changed the game up. I think uh, the new soldiers might feel like extra content that you need. Uh, but from how we have played it, I think it's not nearly as uh, important to buy a book for those new soldiers. They mostly cover off um, what you need. And because, you know, the cool things are more in the your wizard and the spells they cast, and then yep. on top of that, the treasure to upgrade your soldiers, you don't necessarily need full new uh, soldiers as much as you w- uh, would in other types of games. Um, that said, it's just more fun to play through the game, through the game, instead of just choosing random missions, the game becomes so much more fun when you're, when you feel like you're going through a story. And like you said, that's why you're suggesting those other books to give you that whole story-based campaign. Yeah, I would say this is the game, the one that's the best. This is the most bang for your buck. It's called Fall of the Lich Lord. Uh... Yeah, so because this actually has all the things that you want. Yeah, and how many so, missions long is it? It's 10 missions long? It's 10 missions. Mm-hmm. It's a campaign. So if you want a more thematic kind of thing, uh, the lo- the Thaw of the Lich Lord, you play a campaign where you where you're building well, – basically the, the story is a Lich Lord is rising, and you're kind of playing through it uh, up until your confrontation with the Lich Lord. Mm-hmm. And – it's not like it's not like a branching path, so it's not exactly like an RPG. It's more like a JRPG when you think about it, where you're doing stuff, you're leveling up your guys, you have your own inner conflict, and you're you're still fighting the opponent, right? But the Lich Lord starts to kind of insert himself between your battles with your your friends, right? Uh, and so that is, I found, very very fun, and it kind of gives a help to help give a, it just helps to give a thematic arc to the different battles you're having uh, against your friend, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this is simple. It's easy to play. It's relatively short. It has a lot of cool different stuff. But the other thing is, uh, like, like it has, you know, its own treasure that is interesting and fun. Uh, and then the other thing is, this actually does have a couple of new uh, units that are actually kind of good. Now, a lot of the units are hit or miss, but this has uh, the Crowmaster and the Javelinier, which mm-hmm. are two units. I think you mentioned the Javelinier. That if you wanted a couple more units just to spice up your game, uh, those two units are quite a good mix uh, addition. And they're decently balanced, so they're not like overpowered or anything like that. And you can play this game with those things, and you can have a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, no, I, I, we, we played through that campaign, and it was really fun. So I think that yes, yeah. and that is a second edition book. No, it was a first edition no, book. That's why. That's book. why I said so we didn't I didn't notice with you. the fact that it was first edition when we played through it. it we played this in first edition. I don't. It did. 
Mm. Well, all the, t- all the time is messed up because the second edition came out in 2020 and everything yes. is. Yes, this is we play this altered. in first edition. Yes, I, yeah, like you said, you know, COVID has screwed up time, but yeah, this is great. It's still good today. Um, great thing to play through. Still works. Um, and you don't really have for this one. You don't really have to change anything. Uh, there's only one small thing where the a couple of soldiers they they tell that there was never a. Um, there was no specialist and uh, normal soldiers when for, in first edition, so you have to look into the second edition book to see which of those soldiers are which. But besides that, you can play through this book and play it exactly as is. Um, I guess selling magical items, again, you just sell them for 40%. As long as you know that's, that, you're good to go. Yep, the new book tells you that. Yep. So that's why I'd say this is the first book. If you want to buy one expansion, mm-hmm. I would buy Bob the Lich Lord. Uh, besides that, I'd say for the new books, I would probably, like, we haven't actually played this, but based on, uh, what we've been talking about, I think the best one is the Red King, because the other two that have come out, Fireheart and Blood Legacy, are a little bit more advanced for people who have played a lot of books, a lot of games, and Blood, the Red King does seem a little bit more advanced, but it also is mainly a campaign book. And it's kind of cool because the campaign is broken out into five mission campaigns or some or four mission campaigns, I believe. Yeah, it's kind so, of three acts to the story. <clears throat> exactly. So that helps you, like, if you're getting into it, you can play a couple of games, play the four mission campaign, right, for that that act, and get the treasures and things like that. And then when and then you can move back to playing different things. Just you know, it's a lot more easy to have smaller bites before you commit to a larger campaign. Like, for example, we're playing through uh, Maze of Malcor right now, which is a first edition book. But that's 12 missions. So that's a lot more commitment than, you know, telling your friends, let's just play four games, play the first act of uh, The Red King. And if you like that, you can come back maybe even a few months later, right? So Yeah, you don't feel like you're committed to the full thing. You still feel like you've c- completed something. So, yeah. yeah. So I'd say... Thaw of Lord number one, the Red King number two, and I think the which is second edition. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the last thing that I would uh, recommend is Ulterior Motives when you've played a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, because Ulterior Motives is a card expansion that gives you secondary uh, secret objectives whenever you play. So normally you're fighting over what the mission says, which is generally just the treasure, but Ulterior Motives gives you another different thing, and it's like 40 different secondary, like, secret objectives that you can do. It adds a lot of fun for one-on-one combat. Yeah, I was going to say, especially for one-on-one, I find that's really fun, which then brings us to the other way the game can be played, as not necessarily one-by-one versus Mm -hmm. one, but three players on the board, four players on the board. Because from yes. playing from playing the Maze of Melkor right now, a lot of the missions give you like extra instructions for what happens when you have like more than two players. Say you have three plus players, four players. It gives you yeah. extra little instructions for how to modify the mission to play with that. Because the game creator seems to know that people have a lot of fun playing with more than just two people on the board. Yep. And so playing with, for us, we find playing with three three players is the best. Yeah. Uh, most fun and and you know adding a player adds a commensurate amount of time. So it's not like so it does take a lot more time, mm-hmm. right? 
like four players will make your game take double the time. And even though for us, Grave doesn't take that much time, like you'll play a two-player game maybe an hour and a half, right? With uh, or or less, right? Mm-hmm. We can generally play a two-player game hour and a half or less. Uh, when you have four players, that's like three hours, maybe even more, depending on the interactions. Yeah. So um, that suddenly is a long period of time, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, for us, three players, the perfect amount of time, it ends up being, what, two, two and a half hours, right? Yep, to play through a mission. To play through a mission, which is ideal. And then it's kind of self-balancing in, in a lot of ways because, you know, if one person is doing too well, the other two team up. But yeah, when someone grabs three treasures, yeah. you're like, well, you've got three treasures. <laughs> We're not letting you get away with all those. Mm-hmm. Yes. It works really well So the well only that way. thing that I found is that uh, when you play three players, the players who play have to know how to play multiplayer. A lot of people who get into a game don't really understand how to play multiplayer games. And so they will rush to the center first and don't understand by rushing into the center you have basically sandwiched yourself between the two enemies where the two your the two other players mm-hmm. can't even attack themselves they have to attack through you to yep. attack each other so even if they are not trying to team up on you at all if you don't understand that going in the center means that you will be the center of <laughs> of attacks you will feel like you're getting ganged up on when really it's you just have to understand those kind of the, the, the dynamics between <clears throat> multiple games. Yeah, so honestly, if also, you want to get more than one friend into the game at once, it's honestly better to get like a bunch of friends into it all at once. Yeah. And I feel like, oh, we don't have an even number of players to play one-on-one. That's perfectly fine. You have like you have five people yeah. in it. You play three on one table, two on another, and that's a yeah. good time. You don't have to worry that's about right. like, oh, yeah. we won't have like matchups for everybody. No, it's, you don't need to worry about that at all. Yeah, it's great. Like, and and it's so much fun when you have different three player, three different players. You have so many more different spells going on, and so much more chaos. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's such a good time. And honestly, if you have four people show up, and you could play two on two and another two on two, or you could play four on one table. Our suggestion: just put all four on one table and just bump the table size up from three by three to four on four, and it's. It's more fun yeah, that way than just playing two one-on-one Actually, games. we've been playing three-by-three three with four players, and it's great. I don't you even s- think you need to bump it up four-by-four. Four. I think it's actually better if you keep it smaller. As long as you have enough terrain to like make some paths around so you can't just like run straight at the Yeah, you do have to have enough terrain for mm-hmm. a four-by-four, but if you have enough terrain, which is definitely how it's supposed to play, you can play uh, a four-person free-for-all on a three-by-three three table where mm-hmm. you take corners or, or, or side edges you can even do right uh and it is it plays different but still super fun again the biggest issue for me for four players is just the amount of time it takes mm-hmm. so the other note of like how the table is built is often missions will have, have you coming through doors do you think it's worth getting <laughs> like making some doors as well as part of the table just coming back to that <clears throat> i think it's i think that's more about uh, certain missions, like the current mm-hmm. one we're playing, Mesa Malcor, because it's supposed to be uh, in the old, like in the maze of Malcor, which is the yep. old university. Mm-hmm. You're doing a lot of inside things where there's doors. Uh, yep. In most of the other missions, it's mostly outside in the city, so you don't necessarily need that unless you, you know, buy a new book and you want to play the missions, and you're like, oh well. When you do that, you need to collect. You do have to do some hobbying to build those the kind of terrain you need to play the mission. Or you could just use, you know, little paper chits, right? Just 
tear little pieces of paper off and, and label things. You can do that as well. So if we did suggest people play Lothal of the Lich Lord, is there anything in particular they should build in addition to what we talked about? You'll need a lot more undead. Okay, there you go. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. And you would definitely need magic weapons when, if you play Thaw of the Lich Lord. Mm-hmm. Although technically, you also need it for Maze of Malkor because there's lots of undead. There's just lots of undead in the Frozen City. You probably want mm-hmm. more... Uh, you want those magic weapons. Yeah. All right. So we've gone through uh, the game, how you want to start your wizard, uh, the spells, your wizard's warband, the terrain you need, the monsters you want to put on, and finally the extra books you want to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else, last kind of ideas on uh, Frostgrave for getting into the game that you want to mention? Yeah, it's basically like arranging how to play with your friends might be one thing to talk about right now, because that doesn't really fit into... Well, later on in some future episodes, we'll get into like different builds you can do. But like, how would you suggest arranging to get together with friends to do this? Would you try and do two games in one day? If you're meeting at the game store like after work, just do one game? Like, How would you suggest setting all that up? Because that's an issue for every oh. game, but this is game-specific kind of. I think if you're playing one-on-one, mm-hmm. you can fit it in a lot more easily because, you know, it'll only take, you know, two hours, under two hours, you know, set up a table, play the game, mm-hmm. right? So you can yeah. do, you can fit it in anywhere when you're playing a larger group. Uh, you know, I think a little bit more time is warranted, right? And for us, this is this is our advice for every single game. After you play the games, go out for dinner or drinks or something like that mm-hmm. to help, you know... <laughs> Talk about have time to talk about the game. Even at, like if you're playing with uh, some people that you don't know as well, right? Like some people in the same club, it's a yeah. great way to bond over it. And if you're playing with your friends, it's a great time to talk over the game you've just played. Like yeah. sometimes when I play with friends, you know, and you don't like it's it's a fun game, but then you kind of rush home or, or you got something to do. You don't have time to decompress, talk about the game, regale about it. It's just a general good idea. Whenever you do anything hobby-related, not just mm-hmm. miniatures, to have that kind of portion in, in the in it. Yeah, and Frostgrave really lends itself to that, because after the game, you've got to roll to see, like, if your guys got knocked out of commission, whether they, they got injured, they died, what that what was inside those treasure chests. You go through rolling all that up, and then, yeah. like, maybe you buy your stuff then, maybe you buy your new stuff later. So, yeah, it just lends itself to, like, casually meeting up later. Or just yep. casually going out for food, drinks after, and then making all those rolls. Because there's even more, like, the game is kind of continuing at that point, but you don't yep. need the whole table to play out that part of the game. You just make some rolls, look at the tables, see what happens. Yep, and for, uh, I guess before COVID, we did that so much that the people at the local uh, pub knew that knew when we came in and, and had our tables like they knew about Frostgrave because we did it so often to open those those books and roll that sound stuff mm-hmm. so yeah um the last i guess for me the last thing i'd want to talk about is there actually is a type i guess a, a relatively annoying uh misprint in the current books for Frostgrave second edition uh there is a missing item so, if you ever roll a ring of transference, you need to look that up on 
online to find out what it is. Yeah. And Or you can listen to this podcast because I'm about to tell you what it does. So if you get the treasure ring of transference, know that it is a ring that can only be worn by a spellcaster. And once per game, the wearer of the ring can spend an action to transfer up to five points of their own health to another member of the warband that is in line of sight on a one-to-one basis. So if a wearer uh, spent three health, they may transfer three health to another warband member. This may not take the other warband member above their starting health. Uh-huh. There you go. Uh-huh. Now you know what a ring of transference is. And you can look it up. Uh, Joe McCullough put it into a bunch of forums and stuff like that. Yeah, well, anyways, if you want to look for stuff online as well, like copies of the wizard sheet to fill in all your warband on are downloadable. Mm-hmm. If you feel like having the separate copy of all the spells rather than having to flip through the book, those are all online too. So yep. there's a bunch of resources yep. online that are worth downloading. And the Frostgrave Facebook group, uh, Joe McCullough, the writer uh, uh, of the of the game, uh, is on there, and he 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 will sometimes respond. And it's it's pretty active, so there's enough people. Like if you have any questions and stuff like that, you can go there as well. And it's a great resource for people who are getting into the game. Yeah, it's a pretty straightforward game, so you don't have to feel the need to have a giant forum to go through to learn how Brad, to play the game. Brandon really hates Facebook, so <laughs> he's against it. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that is our podcast on introduct- on the getting into Frostgrave. So if you have any uh, further questions on Frostgrave, any questions that uh, on it or any questions for us in general, uh, you can email us at contact at diceovereverything.com. Or find us on Facebook or Dice Over Everything. <laughs> this has been Alan. Yeah, it's been Brandon. <clears throat> Bye.